How are you today? Thanks for coming in the snow. I, uh, I do appreciate it. I, I had a rough morning with Jesus as I saw the snow. And I, looked, I literally looked out our bedroom window and I was like, ah. Oh. And I said something like, I rebuke the snow in Jesus' name. But I don't think it came from the same heart it did when Elijah told it to stop raining for three years. <laughs> I, um, I was actually thinking about that. This is not what I'm preaching on today, but um, you know what's interesting, um, as I was frustrated with the snow this morning, um, I was reminded of in James, I think it's five, where he's talking about the prayer life of Elijah. And he says something really interesting there and that it was Elijah who actually was so grieved at what was going on, at what was going on in his nation with his people. Elijah was so grieved that they had walked away, their hearts were, were, were um, drawn away from God that it was Elijah who asked that it not rain. It was him, it actually wasn't God's initiative. It was his prayer and in James, it actually tells us that Elijah set the time for when the, the famine would start, the drought, but Elijah also set the time for when it would end. And I've been thinking about that a lot, um, thinking just about how I think God wants to, to lead us in such a way that the, the point of our spiritual lives, the point of our walk with him is not that he is giving us minute by minute, like do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Often when we pray and ask God for his will, we're kind of looking for that taskmaster who says, do this now, at two o'clock do this, at three o'clock do this, at 3.15 stop doing this and all of that stuff. And sometimes God does do that. But I actually think the heart of God more than that is to have people that are so deeply connected to him that our heart becomes his heart and our desire becomes his desire. I think God wants to release people like that on the earth that aren't just saying, God, what's your will for the next 10 minutes uh, and then 10 minutes later and 10 minutes later. But I think God is looking for people that he can trust, that carry his heart. And people would say, God, this is burning inside of me. This is burning inside of me. And I know that this is near and dear to your heart. So would you do this? Would you move this way? And it's interesting, if you go back and you really closely study the Old Testament prophets, there are numerous times where God said it was Jeremiah that wanted a certain thing and prayed for it and asked for it. And God actually worked according to the heart of the people that were so closely connected to him. I don't know if my rebuking the snow this morning means I have a lot of work to do with that because it didn't stop snowing, it got worse. Um, so that might be a, an indication of my own heart, but I just want to encourage you today, even as we talk about these counter-formational practices, the point isn't the thing. 
We're not just trying to get you to do more religious activity. Any of these things we've talked about over the last nine or 10 weeks, none of them in and of themselves have any merit or value. It's not that, it's actually these practices, when we engage with these things intentionally, they bring us into alignment with the heart of God. They posture us in a place. They posture our heart and our life intentionally in a place where the presence of God can minister to us and bring transformation and change. The point is not that you become an expert in any one of these things. The point is that these become tools to connect with the presence and heart of God so that he can do the shaping and the forming in such a way that he has people on this earth that he releases and says, yeah, you want that. I do too. So let me release that in you. I think that's what Elijah had going on and Jeremiah and so many people had going on. It wasn't just that they, they walked in this kind of spiritual authority that was, you know, um, garnered through, you know, ascetic discipline, like strict discipline. No, it was men and women who walked so intimately with God. They carried the heart of God. And when they spoke, the purposes of God came to be. That's why whatever Jesus said, whatever he did was truth and life. And it came into being. And I think that he's not necessarily looking for people that just wanna, wanna know every second of the day what to do. Like as a, as a dad, you know, Eli and Simon, Eli's 12, Simon's nine, they're getting tired of our, our parental micromanaging. And it's like, just let, me, just let me go. Like, just let me play. Let me go out into the forest behind our house. And as a good dad, I set parameters as a good mom Rochelle sets parameters hers are stricter than mine but that's okay um, but my heart is not to have to tell them what to do every minute of the day my heart is to train them in such a way that they understand how to live and walk and be in this world in a way that honors God so that I can release them to actually go after the things that are near and dear to their heart. And I think that's what God wants to do in us. He wants to release you in your life to walk out the gifting and passion, the vision and calling he has for you. And today we're talking about being counterformed by radical generosity. And I've put in there just as a subtitle, what we're being counterformed out of is a culture that's driven by comfort, we're driven by easy living. We're driven by drive-throughs and microwaves and all, you know, all of those things. Jesus wants to counterform us from a culture that's obsessed with comfort, that's obsessed with security, meaning I, I, I've built up this kind of, this boundary around me, this safe, place for me to just do whatever I want. You know, it's interesting when you travel a lot, and I haven't traveled a lot in the last two years, but when you do, when you travel in Africa, I've never heard an African person pray for God to protect them and to keep things safe. Maybe they have, and Africa's a large continent, and I haven't met everybody. <laughs> but, so I'm not saying it doesn't happen. 
but at the forefront of their mind is not protect me when I drive to school today. And we have this obsession with safety. Like don't let anything bad happen. And we need to be counterformed from being driven by security, being driven by financial security. I'm not saying that we need to be foolish and unwise stewards of the resources we have. But I wonder today in your life and mine, if Jesus wants to actually just pinpoint a few areas that have moved beyond wise stewardship into a drivenness to be secure financially. And that building that, building that becomes the obsession of our life. Building that then drives us to work and work and work. And building that drives us to miss important milestones in our children's lives and in our families' lives. Building that drives us to, to be disconnected from the people closest to us because we're working toward this idea of margin and security or ownership. We're gonna talk about that today. I'm not suggesting um, I'm not suggesting a social system. What I'm saying is we're obsessed with what we can call mine. And we're driven to accumulate more things that we can possess and hold as our own. And I think there are areas of that that Jesus actually wants to speak into and counterform us out of. As I did last week, I want to give you just a few bullet points. Um, th this is not conclusive, but Jesus has a generosity vision for your life. It's a vision that calls you to fully trust him with what you have. The vision of Jesus for your life calls you to fully trust him with what you need. The vision of Jesus for your life calls you to fully entrust to him what you want. This is a big one. This is a big one for me. God, you know, like, let's just get really practical. I've been wanting a new full suspension mountain bike for a few years. And every time it's like, ah, oh, I think maybe that's possible. Something happens in our life and we got to buy a new vehicle or do something else foolish like that. And I can't get a new bike. But his vision for me actually calls me to entrust to him what I want, what I most deeply long for. His vision calls me out of possession and what I own into a framework of stewardship and management. His vision calls us into a place of letting go. See, here's the counterformational reality of the kingdom. Letting go actually moves us into a place of receiving from him. Grasping leads you to a place of losing. It's the counterformational, countercultural way of the kingdom. His vision for you and I challenges who or what comes first in our life, the priorities of our life. His vision connects us to the resources of heaven. He's not asking you and I to live this depleted life with no avenue for the resources of the kingdom. He actually said that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That you and I have access to the 
the full entirety of the kingdom of God. Whether we can be trusted with that is another question. And this is where being counterformed by radical generosity comes in. And it's a vision that calls you and I to become like him. We've read these verses before, Romans 8. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. So that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You know, Jesus, when we say we want to be like him, what we're actually saying is we want to be like, we want to have the character of our father, the character of God. Jesus was the in-flesh reality of God on the earth. He wasn't just sort of a, a, a you know, um, a sort of okay carbon copy. He was the in-flesh reality of God. This is what Paul says in Colossians. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That's what Paul said. If you want to see the heart and nature of God, look at Jesus. I would go even a bit further and say, if you want to see the heart and nature of God, don't just read what Jesus wrote or said. Don't just read those parts. Study how he lived. Study how he interacted with people. Study how he dealed with confrontation. Study how he operated under stress and duress. Study how he handled pain and suffering. Study how he walked in rejection and all of these things. If you want to know the character of God, don't just fixate on what Jesus said, but look at how he lived. And the gospels will come alive to you. You'll see the heart and the character of God just bursting off the page as you watch Jesus interacting with the world around him. To become like Jesus, then in essence, is to become like the Father. John 14, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Then we'll be satisfied. Jesus said, I've been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? You want to know the nature and heart of God. Get back into the Gospels and begin to saturate yourself in the life of Jesus. One of the fundamental attributes of the Father is radical selfless generosity. You know, we use words and no verses like, for God so loved the world, but... The key in that is that God so loved the world that he gave, right? The character of God, a big part of it is radical generosity. And if we're gonna be shaped and counterformed into the image of Jesus, that's gonna mean that we have to be counterformed into people who live, not just talk about, who actually live radically generous lives. That's with our money, our bank account, but that's not all. It's with our time, it's with our energy, our gifting, our capacity. That's why we're gonna to continue to invite you to get involved here. God isn't just looking for you to drop a check in the offering box. 
once a month or twice a month. He's asking for you to cultivate a heart and a character of radical generosity. We've talked about this, but I'm just gonna cover it quick again because we need to be reminded of this. Why is it so hard then to live out Jesus's vision for us? Why is it so hard to let go of our stuff? Why is it so hard to shift our perspectives and to be formed and counterformed in the way of Jesus? Why is it so hard to take on God's nature and character? Because there are two kingdoms competing for our life. Jesus's vision requires growth and maturity that comes through the formational influence of the kingdom of heaven, but that requires intentionality. It's not passive. You can't just sit on your couch and grow spiritually. You actually need to get intentional about it. And the second reason is that Satan's vision has a much more significant formational force on your life and my life that comes through what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. These three primary areas are shaping our lives and Jesus invites us to be counterformed out of those. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, actually breaks this down in a, in a beautiful way. These three things that are working against us being shaped into a, a people of radical generosity are number one, the deceptive ideas of the enemy. So that's the influence of the devil, not just in your life, but in the world around us. He's twisting truth and he's lying to us about the nature of God, whether we can trust him, whether we can fully entrust our lives to him, whether we can actually surrender our stuff to him. And those deceptive ideas play to disordered desires. They play to the desires in our life that actually demand that we be first, that we take care of number one first, and then everyone gets a little bit of what's left over, even God. Plays to this disordered desire that we become the center of our own universe. This disordered desire that we accumulate more, that we're defined by what we have. And those become normalized in sinful society. Let's not joke around about it. Our society is twisted and bent and broken as it relates to money and wealth and influence and power. And the kingdom of God and the gospels have a strong corrective word against that, being driven by more, being driven by prosperity, being driven by these things. It's not that God doesn't wanna bless your life or my life. It's not that he's not good, he's not withholding from us. But we've bought into this system where we elevate these things to such a place that they become preeminent, defining areas of our life. I just jotted down a few deceptive ideas of the enemy about generosity. Here we go. I can't really trust God. This is what Eve basically was wrestling with. Satan came and he said, you know, God, he's trying to hold something back from you. Don't you wanna know what that is? So I can't trust God, therefore it's up to me to take care of myself. You know, independence is not a kingdom value. It just isn't. 
Second lie, living comfortably will allow me to experience the peace and rest I long for. Like just on the other side, like if I just build that much more margin into my life, then I'll, I'll be able to just take a deep breath and relax and rest. Next, God wants to withhold pleasure and joy from me. God's a killjoy. He doesn't want me to experience the good life here and now, and therefore I'm just gonna make sure I get it. Next, if I don't get it or do it now, I'm gonna miss out. FOMO would be the short acronym for that. Next, I need to take care of myself first. Then I'll give to God and others. You see where that is actually coming from? It's coming from a reliance and dependence and elevation of our own needs first. Let me just take care of number one first. Next, once I'm living comfortably, then I will be generous. But until now, I, I can't, or until then. Last, God would never ask me to do something with my resources that doesn't make sense to me. This is a big one. Can we just have an honest moment in church here? Many of you, and I'm not saying this in an accusatory way, because I've done this too before. Many of you have withheld giving because you don't agree with what's happening to, in the place you're giving. It doesn't make sense to you. Many of you and I are driven by our own framework of logic. Like if this doesn't meet my criteria of what I believe to be smart, prudent, wise, thoughtful, then I'm not gonna give. But that, I can't find that in scripture. Again, I'm not saying to be foolish and I'm not saying just go out and just start throwing your money away. But yours and my intellect, our wisdom is not the defining place of generosity. If you are the one that determines whether something is wise and is something that God would kind of be involved in and do, then you've already lost. Radical generosity actually surrenders our perspective and understanding of what's happening. Radical generosity doesn't demand that I know what's gonna happen or I control what's gonna happen. There's a long history in the church of people using money to try and control what's happening. And the thing is, you're not hurting the church, you're hurting yourself. I'll just keep moving on. All right. So then what does characterize radical generosity? Number one, radical generosity does not use my calculus for return on investment. I'm not saying that everything you do in generosity has to just boggle your mind and not make sense to you. That's not what I'm saying. But my calculus for what is a, a proper return on investment should not be the defining, uh, defining issue. Whether I can calculate return on an investment that satisfies me or not should not be the defining characteristic of whether I am generous or not. Radical generosity does not demand that I know the outcome. 
Again, just think about that mindset. Just peel back a little bit. It'll go up to 30,000 feet. If I always have to know the outcome, what am I struggling with? Control. I'm not living fully surrendered to the king and his kingdom. I'm living in my own kingdom that I craft carefully for myself. Radical generosity embraces faith. Radical generosity makes obedience the measure. This is one I want to just highlight and encourage you with. As far as I can see, and we're gonna be talking to a guest today about this, so you can correct me when you get up here, Doug, if you want. But as far as I can see in scripture, obedience is the criteria and that's it. Obedience. Radical generosity trusts God with the timing. And radical generosity is filled with joy and trust. So I'm not saying radical generosity is foolish. What I am saying is that it doesn't rely on your wisdom or my wisdom. That our generosity doesn't rely on my logic or my ability to control outcomes. C.S. Lewis said this, I do not believe one can settle on how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to go give more than we can spare. The question isn't trying to make sense of everything. The question is, am I being faithful even when that calls me outside of my comfort zone. First principle here, radical generosity, trust God to give the first and the best. So in scripture, God has established this principle of firsts and it doesn't start with the law and Moses. It actually starts in Genesis four with Cain and Abel. I wanna read that to you, Genesis four, two to five. Later, she, that is Eve, gave birth to his brother named Abel, Cain, Cain's brother Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. And it was time for the harvest. Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portion of the firstborn. You can underline that or circle that, the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. In some translations, it says, um, Cain cultivated the ground and in due time, he presented an offering. Here's the principle here. Abel gave first from the first of what he had. Cain gave when it was convenient for him. Cain gave, gave after he had sorted everything else out. The offering that he brought to God was not accepted to God, by God because it was not the first and the best. Abel brought the first. And so this principle of firsts runs all through scripture. This is not a old covenant, new covenant. This is not a law versus non-law versus grace thing. This is a heart of God principle. Do you trust me with the first and the best of what you have? Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. 
Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. Exodus 23, 19, bring the best of the first fruits of your land to the house of the Lord your God. The principle of first and best is a principle of trusting God. It is a practical activation of our faith life. Jesus, do I trust you to bring you the first and best of what I have? Or am I still stuck believing this deceptive idea that I need to to control everything going on around me? That if I don't take care of everything else first, then everything is gonna fall apart. This is a principle of the kingdom that goes after the heart. It's not about your bank account to God. It's not about that. It's about your heart and whether you can fully trust him in your life, whether you've released and relinquished the most valuable and important parts of your life to him. It's not about a dollar figure. It's about saying, Jesus, this week, I trust you in my life. Lord, you know the things that are coming up for me, the needs that I have, but I know you're faithful. And so I'm gonna put that faith into practice and action. This trusting Jesus with the first and best frees us from the harsh demands of self-provision. That's a quote from Doug who's gonna be coming up here. It frees us from this demand on our life that we need to be the ones who provide for ourselves. That our only hope of provision is found in us. That's what this is doing. You can read about this in Matthew 6. We're not gonna read that. Matthew 6, 19 to 34. I'll just read the last part. Jesus is talking about not worrying about what you wear or what you eat or what you're gonna do or how you're gonna make ends meet. He says, don't worry about these things, saying what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Here we go again, principle of seek first the kingdom of God above all else. Live righteously and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough. Don't worry about tomorrow. The principle of first and best counterforms us from a dependency on ourselves to a releasing in faith and trust in God. You know, I just want to tell you a quick story, and this is something actually recently that the Spirit just corrected, I think, my perspective on. And some of you know, like, whatever, five and a half years ago, now, not quite five and a half, but five years ago, when, um, when my dad invited me on staff here at the time, the church was going through transition like we just did in COVID too. But, and, um, and they were looking and, and doing the best they could to follow the direction of God with faith. And I've told this story before, but that, that month or that week that I was kind of brought on here on staff, they had, as a church, we had $240 in the bank account. And it, I'm not being 
uh, you know, I'm not exaggerating. That's what was there. And uh, for the last few years, I've looked at that as like, wow, God, you know, you've done so much since then. Thank you. But I, a couple of weeks ago, the Spirit just randomly said, you're not seeing this right. I, this was actually an act of faith in me. That $240 represents a move of faith before the finances were there, before the security was there, before any of that was there, the leadership of this church walked in faith, believing that as they were following in step with the kingdom of God, that the resources and the provision would follow. And I wish I had time to go through five years of annual reports, you would see the abundant and supernatural provision of God from 240 $40 in the bank to a few hundred thousand right now sitting in the bank as we work on renovations and work on our parking lot and, and faithfully steward the purposes of God. That was not a, a negative, that was a positive. It was a demonstration of trust when the stakes were very high. They didn't even know if they'd be able to pay the electricity bill or salaries or anything. And I can tell you that they didn't miss a beat. Never once in the last five years have we looked at our bank account and gone, oh Lord, like you really let us down with this. This principle of first and best, it, it pulls at this area of trust and faith in our life. Do you actually, when the rubber hits the road, do we trust God with our life? The second principle, radical generosity begins with the tithe, but doesn't end there. And sometimes we fixate on, you know, tithe, old covenant, but we're not under the old covenant, we're under grace now. The tithe, if you hear that language and you're not from church, it means 10%. That word is in the Bible 41 times um, and it's spread throughout the whole Bible. 10 is the number used for testing, just as a point of information for you. Radical generosity begins with the tithe, but it doesn't end there. Again, God is not obsessing about a percentage number. He's giving you a rule of thumb for your life and one that actually costs something. One that you got to think twice about. But he's not obsessing about that exact number. He's saying, here, here's a general rule. Here's where I want you to begin in your life. Number three, principle three, radical generosity counterforms us from a culture of possession and ownership to stewardship. See, the kingdom of God this is a quote from Doug, who you're gonna meet in a minute again. The kingdom of God moves us from the chains of ownership to the freedom of stewardship. Look at the story of the rich young ruler, right? And he says, Jesus, what do I need to do to follow you? And Jesus goes through a bunch of things and he says, great, I've done all of that. And Jesus says, there's still one more thing. You need to sell all your possessions, then come follow me. You know what's interesting? I just noticed this this week. He didn't even say, give it away. <laughs> he said, sell it. It wasn't like Jesus was saying, hey, go broke, 
uh, loose your home, loose, like, like you're gonna be living in, in, a, in a ditch. <laughs> he says, sell it, because that will show, that will show where your heart is attached. Are we obsessed with ownership to the point that we're not allowing the blessings of God to flow through our house and our family? Are we so obsessed with building and owning and possessing things that we're not willing to release those things back into the kingdom? That's, I think, a question. The command in scripture is to bring God the tithe. We don't give it. Why? Because you can't give something that's not yours to begin with. You know, interestingly, that's one of the reasons we we don't collect an offering from you because you're not giving the church anything. When you walk to the back or you go out to the machines in the lobby, when you give online or in person, you're bringing an offering to God. We're not taking something from you. You're bringing something that God is entrusting you to steward. You're not giving back something that's yours. The question of ownership and possession is an important one for us to grapple with. And we believe, again, just on why we do offering the way we do. It's a demonstration of our own trust and faith. This is a a practical way. We started doing this uh, two, maybe two and a half years ago. This is a way for us to practically demonstrate, Jesus, we trust you. We trust you to put it into people's hearts to give and we're not gonna go around and watch every person as they do. We're gonna actually release this to you and we're not, we're not gonna micromanage this anymore. That's why we don't take an offering. It's not because we don't believe in generosity or giving. It's because as a church, God called us to put our, our actions where we said our faith was and actually fully release that to him. As a church, I want you to know that we tithe. We tithe 15% first. The first 15% that comes in, we give that away to people and ministries outside of the church, but we also give it away to people inside the church that need our help. I just bought a plane ticket for somebody this week who desperately needs medication and his doctor is not in this area. He can't afford it. We actually release resources into the kingdom like that. God just calls us to steward his resources, not to control, not to build uh, an empire. We're not building a, a big ministry here. We're just here to actually be a conduit for the purposes of God. And so for us as a church, you need to know that we give 15% away, right off the top, and we've never lacked. In fact, I've been praying and asking God, do you want us to give more away? My heart would be that one day we're giving 20, 25, 30, 40, 50% away, just allowing it to flow through our hands and out to the places and people that God wants it to go. I'm gonna read this verse. And Doug, I'm going to invite you to come up and we're going to use this mic over here, Daniel. Okay. And um, 
This is Doug Nix, everybody. Let's just welcome him up here. And uh, let's have a seat over here, Doug. Okay. Um, is this on? Yeah. Yeah. Doug, um, I was listening to one of his messages from 10 years ago. He's not a pastor. You'll find this out. But um, 10 years ago, he was, was that your church you were speaking at? We have a pastor on staff at his church. Okay. So he was preaching on generosity. And one of the things that just amazed me is actually his whole introduction was around being formed into the image of the kingdom and of the Father. And he was using verses that we've been using for weeks. But I want to read this verse, or these few verses from 2 Corinthians about radical generosity. And then we're just going to have a dialogue with you about what Doug has been learning in his life. Uh, his daughter and son-in-law and their family come to our church. They're part of our church, uh, Felipe and Lindsay and their family. And uh, so I just cold called him out of the blue this week. Literally, um, I got his number from them and he was gracious enough to come with us. But I want to read this for you to just set the tone for uh, what we just discussed. 2 Corinthians 8, a call to generous giving. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God and his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor. Just kind of log that in your mind. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they, have, that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us just as God wanted them to do. So we have urged Titus, who encouraged your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Paul goes on to say in chapter 9, uh, near the end of this whole sort of thing, he says, I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. God is the one who provides the seed for the farmer and then bread to eat in the same way he will provide and increase your resources and then the produce and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. So Doug, I got a little bit of your story um, from your message and from Felipe and Lindsay, but just share with us a, a bit of an introduction into who you are and what you do and where this journey began for you. Do we have all day? <laughs> Well, first, before I start that, I want to commend you guys. Your church walks in generosity. I've seen that in Lindsay and Felipe's life. So I just want to call out to you and say, the Lord will bless you in this, and you are walking what you're saying. So my name is Doug Nix. Um, 
I'm a chartered accountant by training, so I know something about money, maybe too much sometimes. Uh, I have my own business. We started the business in 2002. My wife, Nancy, she's in California on a sewing retreat. Um, she's an integral part of this. Um, and we really felt the Lord was calling us into forming the business. The, um, I grew up uh, in a Christian home, Fundamental Baptist Church. I knew all about tithing and 10% off the top. That wasn't a mystery to me. Um, and, uh, but we grew up poor and uh, like basement apartment, kind of poor. Uh, six people in a small basement apartment. And the Lord had, or I, not the Lord, I had already always struggled with fear and insecurity about money. So. Mm. And so just give us a bit of fast forward. What kind of business are you guys running right now? Uh, we're in mergers and acquisitions advisors. So we help clients buy and sell mid-sized companies. We're based in Oakville. Okay. Um, in your story, I think you start around 2004. What, what led to this kind of shift in posture from being afraid of kind of generosity and in, in finances to actually feeling like God was calling you into a different kind of life? Truthfully, fear and desperation. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. Um, we'll share some numbers, okay? Yeah. Um, but I felt that the Lord had called us into to, uh, establishing a business where Christ was the senior partner, where we were drawing continually on an all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God, asking him for direction. And we, we had it confirmed in prophecy. But you know, as we were moving through, man, the financial results were horrible. Right. So let's, let's throw that up, Davey, that first, uh, that first one, yeah. Okay, now, I'm, t I'm just showing, have you guys ever heard of a message where people are talking about the generosity of God, but they never talk about money, <laughs> uh, the dollars? So the Lord released me, this is 2004, and you can see here's our cash received. This is, you won't go to our bank, that's what you'd see. And for some people at the time, that would have been really good, but... Every month we had to pay 25000 in overheads, right? So you could see, you know, we're looking at that going, Lord, where are you? Right? What's going on here? How, how does this reconcile with, you know, Malachi, bring the tithe in and all of that? So one of the challenges that I had was, I know about tithing personally, but when you have a business, how do you tithe in a business, right? That's really hard. And then if you're borrowing money in the business to pay yourself, do you tithe on that? Is that really... And it gets complicated. So Nancy and I, or Nancy, my better half, um, she had uh, bought Robert Morris's Blessed Life series. And she convinced me in September of that year to watch it with her. So, that's, so we, we watched that. And the Lord kind of laid it on our hearts, the question about first fruits, right? And so first fruits for me as a, 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 a worker, that's easy, that's my salary. But in a business, what are first fruits in the business? Yeah, so walk us through this shift now um, from, you see that tithing line is just uh, dash marks <laughs> there. So walk us through this next one, you can throw that one up, Davey, of when you guys began to actually give. Yeah, so what happened was at the end of October, we had enough money to tithe or just barely pay the rent, right? And so Nancy and I looked at each other and said, okay, we're just gonna do this. 
we're going to tithe, you know, because if the business can't support a tithe, then it's not a business, okay? That's what we did. Now, before I do this, this is for Nancy and I, okay? This, I'm not saying that anybody should be given off the gross in your business. This was for Nancy and I. And before, my, my admonition to you is before you do this yourself, sit down with an elder and seek counsel, okay? Because it's, it's moving away from that independence that you were talking about. We need collective wisdom and discernment on this. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. So we said, okay, well, if the, <laughs> can't get any worse, right? So we tithed. Uh, seven days later, we had enough money to pay the rent. So it's okay. Well, that's, that's good. It's, uh, and then look what happened in November. 17,000 came in. Okay. Um, and then at the end of the month, same thing. We could either tithe or pay the rent. And we said, you know what? <laughs> Let's go for two for two. We tithed. Then look what happened in December. Three days later, the money came in for the rent. Okay? And then we tithed uh, in December. And then look what happened. January, February, March, April. Isn't that cool? That's what the Lord did. So here's the cool thing. I was doing the same thing at work from October and prior, as I was doing through November and subsequent. I wasn't doing anything. The only thing Nancy and I were doing is we were giving, right? And this is the blessing of the Father that come. Do you got one more slide? Yeah, we have one more. Let's go to that one. Okay, so I don't want you to think it was just a little season. So here's what happened for the next uh, two, four, six, two and a half years, right? Can you see a quarter of a million dollars in giving on $2.5 million of income, right? So 20 times that six months total uh, was our revenue. Now, that's, that's the blessing of our Father, right? Now, we weren't giving in order to receive, because I think that's a false doctrine. Sorry, why could you say that? Yeah, well, yeah, you did you say, say that. Challenge I was going to ask you about that later. But. Okay, well, we'll do that later. Um, but that's, that's the blessing of the Lord. That's a faithful Father, right, who loves us and cares for us and provides for us. And I tell you, he did that for us, he'll do that for you, okay? Because he doesn't discriminate. If, we're, if our hearts are for him, that's what he does for us. I'm curious, in, in this early stage, because this was a number of years ago now, so I'd love to get a bit of an update, but in this early stage, as you began to trust God more mm -hmm. with giving, um, did it become exciting or was it super stressful still? Were you like biting your nails every time or what was going on oh, in was your heart? It was cool. I just like had a little pad of paper right beside my desk and I kept writing it down. And there's this growing excitement when you saw, you know, we're lit. I felt it. I felt I was living a miracle, okay? It was so cool just to say, Lord, I'm gonna do this. What are you gonna do, right? So what, what did that begin to teach you about God's character and his nature? Well, just, I could digress for one second. So what it, it started with me learning of God as my father, okay? Not just God, but God as my father, right? So I, I learned a deepness and an intimacy with my father, a love for my father, a kindness of my father, a gentleness of my father, a faithfulness of my father, and a generosity of my father. I came to realize 
as we, um, as we grow in our Christian life, we start by putting off the sin. Then we move into the stage where Christ is uh, empowering us to live. But there's the next stage, and that's where Christ is living his life through us. Okay, so we're moving into that stage. And so when I think about this, um, there's a, the generosity of God, the fundamental character of God that you talked about. It was really important to, to me to realize there are no mature misers in the kingdom. Okay, if you see somebody who's a miser who are, or is cheap, there is no maturity there. There's a fundamental disconnect between being a miser and being a mature believer. Because maturity means we're being formed into the image of Christ. Christ is living through us. And the attributes of Christ and our Father are being demonstrated in every part of our life. Yeah, that's good. You used that. That caught my attention in your message. That you cannot be spiritually mature and not actually live a generous life. Yeah, that's right. That's a hard thing to hear, but I think it's a good thing for us to hear. Can you... Um, so, you know, without going month by month, what has the, the, the next number of years brought for you? Like, how have you continued to see or not see God's yeah. provision in your business? So I started with telling you about um, finances were a point of vulnerability in me, right? And um, the Lord used this initially to start breaking me as a person, Okay to break off fear and anxiety. And we had to go through this a couple more times, okay, in order for the Lord to say, Doug, will you trust me? Will you trust me with your finances? And I'm gonna just share this with you. Two and a half years ago, we had a season, a tough season of cash, tight cash flow. And I was praying, I said, Lord, Father, Father, what's going on? And there was two things. He said, first of all, Doug, sometimes the trials you go through are not for your benefit. They're for the benefit of the people around you. Because what happens then is the people around you are looking to you to see how a mature son and Nancy, a mature daughter, walk through difficult times, right? So if you're going through a, tri a trial right now in your life and your heart is turned towards the Lord, don't think it's necessarily because there's something that you need to, to fix. The other part was, I remember I was sitting in our boardroom and I go, <laughs> Um, and I was just waiting on the Lord, and I felt him say, hey, Doug, how do you think the Israelites felt when they were leaving Egypt? The Red Sea was there, and the Egyptians were behind them, right? I, I said, yeah, probably just about like I feel right now, <laughs> you know, panic-stricken. And uh, he said, and here was the word, the life-giving word of the Lord to me. How do you think they would have felt had they known what was going to happen at the Red Sea? I said, oh my goodness, they would have run to the Red Sea, right? And he said, that's right, Doug, because the Red Sea to them was the point of impossibility, right? So you in your life run to the point of impossibility because that is the point where you will see the demonstration of my power. That's the point where you'll see my miracles in your life, okay? So that's it good. lifted that whole fear and anxiety and go, Lord, I'm just going to run to that point of the impossible, I say that very boldly and confidently until it comes again, okay? But, but this is my goal, my hope that I do this, okay? So how have you seen that play out then in practical ways in your life? I have never seen um, the Lord not provide. We, were built, we had a construction project 
um, that we the Lord had blessed us to do, and we had like a hundred thousand dollar check required. We didn't have the money for the invoice came day, came in three days later. The money was in the bank, but we were walking. Nancy had been walking in that faith walk to say, "No, I know." that my father is going to provide everything I need. And God, here's kind of what I found, is whatever he orders, he pays for, okay? It's not like he's going to order me to do something and and not pay for it, okay? That's it. Man, you've got a lot of good one-liner stuff. Like, <laughs> wow, whatever he orders, he pays for. But he does. I'm just like going to write that down. Uh, I stole a bunch of your stuff already today. So, <laughs> But listen, it, in, in church budgeting, let me just say that, okay? A lot of churches I've been a part of in the past have said, well, what are our givings last year? We're going to add 10% and we're going to figure out what we're going to do with that money. That is completely backwards. The flip is, what does the Lord want us to do this year? We're going to do that. And we're going to trust him to provide because whatever he orders, he pays for. That's so good. Um, just We have just a minute or two left. Can you talk to us? You, you talked about learning how to pray then for our needs. Yes. It was really practical and I found it really helpful. Then like we all have like just very practical needs. Um, so how have you learned to pray about the needs that are right in front of you in your life? Yeah. So um, a lot of our life gets reduced down to, to quantifying it by money, right? Lord, I need a new car, so would you send me the money for the car? I need a new coat, would you send me the money for the coat? I need to go to that place, would you send the money for this, right? I think uh, we do a disservice when we pray like that. When we should be praying, Lord, I need to go to that place, would you provide a way to get to that place? Lord, I need a new car, would you provide a car? Lord, I need a coat, would you provide a coat? And there's a freedom that comes because when we pray just for the money, we're saying, or the money is just a vehicle, okay? That's a, a one vehicle the Lord could use. So let's open and let the creativity of the Lord come. Who knows, maybe one day we'll be transported. We'll say, Lord, I gotta go to, let's say Florida. <laughs> go in the bathroom, come out and I'm in Florida. Wouldn't that be cool? Like, Yes, especially today, it would be very cool. With with the snow. Let's bow our heads, all right? right. Um, I I was thinking about that. Like, maybe that's obvious to some of you, but I think I always would tend to say, Lord, provide the finances for this or for that. And I wonder if it just in me, I'm not accusing anybody else of this, but if that's also a way for me to control, like... I want to be able to have it so that I can decide what to do with it. And sometimes when people uh, have blessed Rochelle and I in our life with different things, what they're blessing us with may not be my first choice if I had one. And God has been teaching me to be actually joyfully content with what he does provide But often I get caught in that trap of like, I need this amount of money for this thing. So, and sometimes God does send money, um, but I think it's an issue of actually living content with him as well in our life that we would pray for what we need and actually enjoy the process of God providing that and learning to actually surrender that to him. I don't know if you have any further 
wisdom on that. But No, I agree with you. So just completely, and I agree with your comment on it all comes out of obedience. But just one last thought if I could leave with you, okay? Here's kingdom giving. It's giving and receiving without record keeping or any expectation of return, okay? So when we're, some people I hear talk about tithing, we're gonna give this because we're gonna get that. That's not biblical, okay? That's investing. We're gonna give something in the expectation of a return. That's investing. We're not called in this instance to invest. We're called in this instance to give, which is totally different. The Lord sees our giving as an investment, right? Because he blesses what we give. We don't see our giving as an investment. I'll just leave you with that thought. Yeah, that's good. Um, just as one final thing, have you seen God can expand your capacity for generosity in your, in your business? And in, what have you been able to, what, what has he given you the pleasure of partnering with him in? So we have, uh, just at Christmas time, we set aside some money and we did matching donations for our staff. Um, we've been partnering in women's ministries, we've been partnering in homeless work, we've been in, like, the, the local needs of the poor and the homeless. That's, you know, it's just awesome to be able to do that. And, and we're trying to do it without bringing attention to ourselves. okay? Because, um, you know, the, the Father sees what we do in secret and he rewards what we do in secret. It's, it's all about him and a lived experience, right? Not just the knowledge, from scripture, but a lived experience of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present Father who loves us. Yeah, that's good. Um, just as we go, um, I just want to come back to just the heart of the Father. Like, I, I'm, I'm just thinking still about that Red Sea image and like that place of impossibility Obviously, God knew what he could do. But I, I think that he loves to surprise us with his lavish generosity in his heart. But so often, we dig our heels in and we refuse to go to the shore of the Red Sea. And we backpedal and we divert and we find so many other places. And some of us struggle to really understand the heart of God as it relates to this because we haven't been willing to walk to the shore and actually be in a place where it's God or bust. What, uh, what could you just leave with us in terms of the heart of the Father for people with that? He is for you, okay? He is not against you. He doesn't stand there in judgment of you. He sees your sin, but your sin doesn't change his love for you. It changes how he uses you, maybe, but it doesn't change his love for you. He has called us. Like, here's a central verse for me. When Christ said, I have come that you could have life and have it more abundantly, the translation that I use is, I have come that you could have life and have life the way God intended life to be lived. And that's what the Father's heart is for us, to call us into an intimate relationship moment by moment, but where we're maturing sons and daughters formed in the image of Christ, where we don't have to figure, Lord, do I do this, do I do that? But we have the mind of Christ in us. But he loves us, he disciplines us with gentleness. Yeah, it's so good. I, I, I know that you wouldn't um, toot your own horn, but one of the things in passing Lindsay just said was that 
you guys have closed some of your biggest deals ever in history. And God has just been so faithful in blessing you as a business beyond your wildest dreams. And um, I just, I, I hope that just our little chat with Doug is an encouragement to you today that you can trust God with your life and with the things that are most important to you. Our church, like we're, we're not, we don't need your money. <laughs> we don't, God has never let us down as a church, but he's inviting you into this adventure of life where you are on the shore of the sea and it's God or bust. And he, I, I'm convinced that he wants you to experience the exhilaration of his provision in your life and his faithfulness and the exhilaration of watching him supernaturally work around you. Let's stand up and would you mind praying for us, Doug, before you turn the mic off? And <laughs> Yes. Oh, Father, you, you have been so good to us. There's no good thing that you've withheld from us. Um, you love us. You've carried us. You see us as we are. Lord, you couldn't know us any better, you couldn't love us anymore. So Father, I ask now that you would take the people in this church, your children, Lord, that you would bless them, that you would show them your presence, Lord, that they would be aware of you, Lord, that the chains that are binding people would be broken off today in the name of Jesus, Lord, that there would be a, a transformation in the church as it moves into radical generosity, Lord, that you would show the people here as they turn hearts to you uncommon favor. Lord, that you would show them your supernatural power. Father, that you would do this, that they would hear that love song that you sing over top of them, Father, that they'd know the tears and see the tears that have been wept over them through the trials. Lord, that you would carry this people into that new level of knowledge and understanding of you. 